Through hubris, greed, and a desire for power and control, Wizards of the Coast has decided to try to deauthorize an agreement that third-party publishers have used to boost Dungeons & Dragons for more than 22 years. Today, we're going to talk about the whole fiasco that has been going on with the OGL 1.1, the OGL 2.0, and everything else. If you want to learn more information about what the OGL is, what's been going on, what has been happening with it, what you can do about it. I have a whole bunch of links down in the show notes below that you can click on, including the original Gizmodo article, which broke the news of the OGL 1.1 and the attempt to deauthorize the 22-year-old OGL 1.0a. My own blog article, where I tried to summarize what's been going on and link to all of the most vital sources for this information. And I also have a Sly Flourish article that I'll be posting on Monday that is more focused on what you and I can do about this. What does it mean for you and I, the DMs who, have, who love D&D, who love playing D&D and who love playing RPGs. What does this mean for us? What can we do about it? And how can we steer our games? That article is going to be coming out on Sly Flourish on Monday. I will be sure to link to it in the show notes below as well. Wizards of the Coast's betrayal of third-party publishers matters to everybody. It matters to everyone in this hobby. If you are a dungeon master, if you are a player, if you are a content creator, whatever you are in this hobby, Wizards of the Coast attempting to pull back a license that we've been using, an agreement really, that we've been using using for 22 years to build compatible products for D&D. These are products that have boosted D&D in ways that Wizards of the Coast never would have been able to do on their own. By them, by them doing this, it's affecting the entire hobby. And you can see it everywhere. If you, there isn't a single YouTube channel that hasn't talked about this. If you go over to Reddit and you look at the D&D Next or the 1D&D threads where typically we all talk about how to run our games, they are completely inundated with threads about what this has done to the hobby. What uh, this attempt to try to deauthorize third-party publishers' ability to write for D&D has done to the hobby. And it really matters. Even if you are just using the, the base content that D&D has, your DMs are able to pick up monsters and ideas from other books and other concepts from all of these other third-party publishers that have been doing this for decades. There are books like Tolis from Monty Cook Games, Crown of the Oathbreaker, Mid the Midgard World book, Strongholds and Followers, the Taldorai Reborn book. All of these books, Wizards of the Coast is not going to publish books like these. They have their own line, they have their own books, they have their own intellectual property that they can focus on. And they can let the whole rest of the community build up D&D with all of these other kinds of products, some of them very niche products. Some of these are products that only a couple thousand, a couple hundred copies are going to sell that focus on something specific. Wizards of the Coast totally didn't need to do this. There was no need to try to hold back third-party publishers from being able to publish this kind of content. These third-party publishers are not competitors to D&D at all. Wizards of the Coast has their own products that they're putting out, and third-party publishers are putting out totally different products. The next biggest publisher that uses the OGL is less than 1% the size of Wizards of the Coast. Products like Ancestry and Culture helped move D&D into all new directions that Wizards of the Coast has taken years to even start considering. Ancestry and Culture is an adamantine bestseller on DriveThruRPG by Arcanist Press, completely changed the game, got really good ideas, and got lots of people thinking about how to handle the issue of race in D&D. Fantastic product. Could not have happened without the OGL. Wizards of the Coast's excuses for going through this process hold no water at all. They claim right in the beginning of their article that there are three reasons that they're doing it. Number one is we wanted the ability to prevent the use of D&D content from being included with hateful and discriminatory products. So who exactly are the ones that are creating these hateful and discriminatory products? 
Wizards of the Coast. Spelljammer had all kinds of racist stuff in there that was so bad they had to do a whole new print run of the book. So who exactly are they protecting us from? Second, they say, we want to address those who are attempting to use D&D in Web3, blockchain games, and NFTs. So what companies are they going to protect us from there? Oh, that's right. Hasbro, owner of Wizards of the Coast, is publishing their own NFTs. What kind of hypocritical nonsense is this? We don't want you publishing NFTs. Only we can publish NFTs. And third, they say, we want to ensure that the OGL is for the content creator, the home brewer, and the aspiring designer. You might draw a little underline on aspiring. When you actually become a true designer, then they don't want you anymore. Our players and the community, not major corporations. Who are they kidding? Hasbro themselves are the ones that are trying to grow profit 50% over the next three years in their attempt to try to become Disney. Cynthia Williams, the vice president over Wizards of the Coast, said that they're under-monetizing players, that we're only getting DMs to buy stuff. We want to try to figure out ways for players to buy stuff. They're the ones that want to grow this brand into something enormous. And guess what? They'd already won. They don't, there's no competitor. There's no major corporation that they're boosting with this. That's not the risk. I think it's a common misconception that everybody thinks that Wizards of the Coast is just after money. My friend Teos Abadia actually did an analysis on how much money they would actually get if the original OGL 1.1 license had been put in place. How much money would third-party publishers have given to them? And it was like four to eight million dollars, which is peanuts. They're a billion dollar company. That's nothing. It was like... They could earn that in something like three days. This has nothing to do with money for Wizards of the Coast. This has to do with hubris, power, and control. This is their desire to control the brand. They don't like the fact that a good chunk of the brand and a good chunk of the attention that's brought to it is brought to it by us, by hobbyists, by third-party producers who work out of their basement, just making products because we love this game. They want control over this game, and that's why they're doing what they're doing. Their statement is completely hypocritical. They do not need to protect the brand from that stuff. You know why? The OGL has nothing to do with the brand of D&D. You can't use the words Dungeons and Dragons or D&D if you use the OGL. It has nothing to do with the brand. It has to do with being able to write compatible stuff with the rules. And that's what they want control over. In trying to get control over third-party creators, Wizards of the Coast has caused significant damage to the brand of D&D. They didn't need to do this. They have a huge brand. They could have focused all on movies, TV shows, cartoons, video games, music, merchandise. There's so many areas that they could focus their attention on getting D&D out there into the public discourse and leave the game alone and let us all continue to boost up the game and build up the game and love the game and tell people we love the game. Have conversations with our neighbors about how much we love the game. They could have left it all alone. They could have sat there in their offices shooting paperclips with a rubber band and they would have done so much better for D&D than what they're trying to do now. They are snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. They had already won. D&D Beyond is so popular. It is such a monopolized system that I can't even get my own players to stop using it. They had already had everything they needed to have control over this brand, but they needed a little bit more. They still didn't like that there was this one last thing out there that let third-party publishers safely write products for D&D. And they went after that. And this is what happens. They alienated their biggest fans with this move. They had brand ambassadors, people that they had hired to promote one D&D, who went online on Twitter to cancel their D&D Beyond subscriptions. In 26 years, I have seen no outcry against D&D like this. There hasn't been a controversy about D&D this big since the 80s and the Satanic Panic. To quote Jerry Holcomb from Penny Arcade, you have entered treacherous waters entirely of your own volition. 
They didn't have to do this. They made choices to do this. And they have caused, and what I think might be, irreparable harm to the D&D brand. Major third-party publishers are all pivoting away from D&D. As far as I know, no one has actually signed their contract to work with them. And everybody instead is figuring out how they can continue to work in the RPG hobby without them. MCDM and Cobalt Press both said that they're making new RPGs on their own. They both announced that they're building their own RPGs that are going to be independent from D&D and independent from any sort of gaming license. N-World Publishing is looking at how to take a level up advanced 5e and break it away from the OGL. Paizo said that they're going to release Pathfinder and Starfinder once they get through their current print runs, that they're going to release both of those books with no license agreement whatsoever. And Pathfinder has said that they are going to fund a independently controlled open gaming license known as Orc. And a bunch of different publishers have said they're getting on board with this. This might actually make the hobby stronger in the end, but it's going to be ugly in the meantime, and it could suck all of the oxygen out of the room when it comes to Dungeons and Dragons. We can never trust Wizards of the Coast to do what's right for Dungeons and Dragons again. That's what they proved with this move. We had an agreement with them. It was the OGL was definitely a weak contract. If you talk to any of the lawyers who have looked into it, it was a weak contract. But what it was, was an agreement between Wizards of the Coast and third-party publishers that we would write compatible products for D&D and they wouldn't come after us in court. The reality is neither group knows exactly what is legal when it comes to publishing content like this. None of it has ever gone to court and been proven. One thing that we've seen if you've watched and talked and listened to all of the lawyers that are talking about this is it's pretty clear that it's possible we don't need any license agreement at all. The word is possible. We don't really know and we don't know if they go after us or not. Is Wizards going to become much more litigious? I hope not, but they could. And if they do, what's the likelihood that a small independent publisher can withstand a lawsuit? We don't know how that's going to play out. It's uncharted water. The OGL was not a benefit that Wizards of the Coast was providing to third-party publishers. The OGL was an agreement between both groups that neither group would go after one another, that we wouldn't try to push this one way or the other because neither group knew exactly how it was going to play out. So what can you and I do about this? What can the fans of D&D do about this problem? Well, there's a few different things we can do. I recommend sending physical letters to the CEO of Hasbro, Chris Cox, and to the vice presidents that are in charge of this, which is Cynthia Williams, vice president of Wizards of the Coast, and Dan Rawson, the brand new vice president of Dungeons and Dragons. Send them a letter. Be polite, but be specific. Tell them how this makes you feel about the brand. These vice presidents, they're not thinking about books. They're not thinking about rules. They're not thinking about the publishing side. They're thinking about the brand. They're worried about the D&D brand. They're worried about TV shows. They're worried about movies. They're worried about video games. They're worried about the big picture stuff. Tell them how this makes you feel about the big picture stuff and give them a way out. Tell them what you want. And what we want is for them to not deauthorize the OGL 10A and ideally strengthen it. Make an OGL 10B that's strengthened that says it's irrevocable and then support that with a 1D&D SRD. That's what I want. Do I think that's likely? No. But that's what I want. And, and that is a way out. That's something they could do. They could do it today and it would turn everything around because the stuff they're doing right now is not helping at all. The other thing we can do is support third party creators. You can do this if you're playing 5e. There's tons of great third party products that you can pick up for fifth edition. I'm going to talk all about them on this show. I've talked about them on this show. We're going to talk more about that. You could try other systems. We're going to talk about 10 different systems that you can play today that either are similar to D&D or quite a bit different than D&D that you can enjoy with your friends. Support those products. A real big one 
is breaking our dependence on D&D Beyond. I've talked about this on the show before. D&D Beyond is an excellent tool. It's really easy to use for 5th edition, but it does not support any third-party products. We need to break our dependence upon D&D Beyond if we want this hobby to be strong. I'm going to talk about this more in the future. We're going to, we're going to figure this out. It's going to be hard to do. It's hard for our players. It's hard for us. But if we can break our dependence on D&D Beyond, our hobby is stronger for everyone. It's stronger for us. It's stronger for our players. And it's stronger for the whole rest of the hobby. Most of all, remember that D&D does not belong to them. They may be the caretaker of the brand, but we own D&D. We own the books. We own the hobby. When we sit around the table with our friends playing this game, that has nothing to do with them. This may be their brand, but it's our hobby. D&D has suffered through catastrophic problems like this in the past and survived. It has survived for 50 years, and it's going to survive for 50 more. Wizards of the Coast can't destroy this hobby that we love. They can damage the brand, and I think they clearly have done so. They can alienate their own fans, and they've certainly done that. We have books that are 50 years old that we can use to play D&D. We have the hobby, and we can always run it. D&D is our hobby, and no matter what they do, they cannot take that away from us. So let's look at 10 role-playing games that aren't D&D. Each of these games are excellent. Uh, I've either run them myself, or I've played them, or I've talked to people and, and looked at them, and they're all excellent RPGs. Some of these are very much like D&D. Some of these are very much not like D&D. They cover a wide range of the different kinds of RPGs. These are not what I consider to be the best role-playing games that are out there. This is a list of 10 RPGs that I think are really good. You almost certainly have products that you love that aren't on this list. I take no... Take no insult from the fact that I have created this list together. I just wanted to show off a handful of other RPGs that we could play that aren't D&D. These are also in alphabetical order. They are not in an order by preference. And the first of those is a game that I adore called 13th Age. 13th Age is a D20-based game built by Jonathan Tweet and Rob Hainso, both of them veteran designers of Dungeons & Dragons. They refer to this as their love letter to D&D. I would say the style of play of 13th Age is very similar to 4th Edition, only with a much heavier focus on story-focused games. It's an excellent role-playing game. I have run multiple campaigns with 13th Age, and I really, really love it. Some of the things you'll notice about 13th Age is it has a much steeper power curve than D&D does. It only has 10 levels, but those 10 levels levels of play are actually very equivalent to the 20 levels of play that you'll find in 5th edition D&D. It uh, definitely focuses on the idea of character powers. You have certain things that you can do. They are all very high-powered things. One thing, for example, that you'll notice is you have a weapon, a, a damage die for your character, for your class, and every level you add another damage die. So you'll do like 7d10 damage on a weapon attack in 13th Age. It's a really, really fun RPG. It focuses around the idea of icons these sort of major players in your campaign. And you can customize the icons to be whoever you want. And the characters all have connections to these icons, and you roll on those connections to kind of see which icons sort of come to the forefront of the story, which ones sort of get pushed back, and what relationship they have with the characters. There's definite story-focused elements to this game, like the idea of backgrounds. You select your backgrounds, you write them down, you apply a score to a background, and whenever that background would come into play, you add that score to your roll. There's a lot of really interesting mechanics in 13th Age that you can actually bring in, into other role-playing games. One is, example is the Escalation Die. The Escalation Die is something that you do in combat. It starts at zero, and then after round one, it increases, and that, that bonus of the Escalation Die is added to everybody's attack bonus, which means all of the attacks get stronger. Certain powerful monsters can also use the Escalation Die to escalate their abilities in a game. It's a really interesting way to watch the, watch the game build up. 
The 13th Age Mega Bundle sale on the Bundle of Holding is going on right now, where you can pick up all of the books for 13th Age, a huge collection of books, an amazing collection of books. And you can pick it up for $25 for the starter collection and 40 about just shy of $42 for everything. But you're getting dozens of books. Even if you just get the starter collection, that is a really good list of books. But if you want to add all of the other books to really fill this out, 40, 42 bucks, the price of one hardcover book gets you... 19 different source books for 13th Age. Really, really good deal. I love 13th Age. I'm probably going to be running, I'm hoping to run a 13th Age campaign later this year. Blades in the Dark is a independent role-playing game by John Harper, published by Evil Hat Games. It is a heist-based role-playing game. It, this is a really fun setting, really cool, dark, grim world. Strange magics and weird occult stuff is going on in this city that is a, the last bastion of the crazy undead hordes out in the in the fields and you're going on heists with your crew it's actually a very crunchy game for an independent story focused game it is a very crunchy game i found it a little bit difficult to run as a dm but my players absolutely enjoyed this game some have referred to it as being a little bit like a writer's room that you and your players are sort of in a writer's room doing a show about a heist and you have your characters there's interesting character growth you can run blades in the dark as a one shot but where i think it really shines is probably in four to eight sessions where you can really watch your crew grow, where you can really watch the heists grow and the different factions that are going on. I don't think you could get all of that to happen in one session. After you've done 8 to 12 sessions, you've probably run uh, a full a full campaign in Blades in the Dark. The full system resource document for Blades in the Dark, which is pretty much all of the rules in the game, are available online for free. So if you want to check it out and see if it's for you, you can do so. You can also pick up the physical version. I did. It's a beautiful physical volume. You can also pick up the PDF and try that. If you want to do a heist-based adventure, if you want to do a heist-based RPG, I think there's nowhere better to look than Blades in the Dark. If you're looking for something that's a little bit more D&D-like, there is a variant of Blades in the Dark called Band of Blades that's set in sort of a Joe Abercrombie dark fantasy world that uses all of the same sort of mechanics and rules for Blades in the Dark, but is more along the lines of your D&D-focused fantasy adventures. Fantasy Age is a RPG that uh, the age system that it is based on has been around for, I think, more than 10 years, more than almost 10, 12, 15 years. Fantasy Age started off uh, as a branded game called for Dragon Age, a video game that came out back then. And where I first heard about that was my friend Enrique, the newbie DM, actually was using Dragon Age instead of 4th Edition. He was kind of souring on 4th Edition. He wanted to try some other stuff. So he started using Dragon Age and he loved it. He talked about how much more cinematic it was and how much more interesting it was to, to run this game. Fantasy Age is definitely a, it's a D, it's, it actually uses 3D6 instead of a D20 game, but otherwise it feels very much like a D&D game. You have your core classes, you have ways to expand those classes. Uh, it's very much sort of a crunchy role-playing game. I think it could very well fit as a good replacement, a good straightforward replacement for D&D. I have not played Fantasy Age. I think I might have played it once as like a one-shot game long ago, but I've always gravitated back towards this and I've always remembered that it had that sort of the idea of the fun bits of fourth edition and the cinematic focus of role-playing games with still enough crunch to really keep players involved and watching their characters evolve and everything like that. So that's one thing that you find with a lot of independent role-playing games is sometimes they gravitate towards heavy character options, lots of different ways that your characters can grow. And then other ones are more about, we're just going to kind of focus on the stories. Games like Fate. They both have their place. But I think for games that really have good longevity in a campaign, you want the characters to be able to grow over time. And I think Fantasy Age offers this up. Fantasy Age is one of the 
RPGs that are available in the non-OGL fantasy bundle of holding. There's a whole bunch of them. Worlds Without Numbers in there. I'm not talking about that, but Worlds Without Number is an awesome RPG. Many of these other ones I haven't really heard of, but if you want to try a whole plethora of different RPGs that aren't D&D, you can check out the, the non-OGL fantasy bundle of holding. $30 gives you access to the entire set. You can either spend 10 bucks for five RPGs, but if you want to go ahead and get Worlds Without Numbers, which I would recommend, and you want to get fan- Fantasy Age, if you pay 30 bucks, you get all of those RPGs plus those two uh, in it as well. That's part of the non-OGL fantasy bundle of holding. On the other side of the crunchy meter, we have Fate. So Fate has the Fate Core, Fate Condensed, and Fate Accelerated. Fate is a very straightforward role-playing game where you can build characters based on your concepts for that character. It is the only role-playing game I know where you can actually do character creation as part of an adventure when running a one-shot game. You can use Fate for any sort of scenario. You can use fantasy, you can do far future, science fiction, and they have done so. If you look at the kind of products that uh, Evil Hat puts out, Evil Hat has taken the Fate system and applied it to many, many different genres. One thing I really love about Fate is the rule book is 66 pages. This is the Fate condensed rule book. Very thin book, very very inexpensive, and yet contains everything you need to be able to run a role-playing game in any system. If you kind of absorb the fate rules, you can apply any other world to it. So you can take any fantasy world you like. Maybe you like Numenera, but you're not crazy about the cipher system. You can take all of the concepts of the characters in Numenera and easily apply them to fate and have a game ready to go. I think fate is the best system for single session one-shot games that I have seen. I really, really love it. There are ways to sort of expand your fate character and let them grow over time. I don't think that's nearly as strong as the kind of systems you would find in something like Fantasy Age or 13th Age or some of the other systems that I'm going to talk to. So I don't think it works particularly for really long-term campaigns. But for short-form campaigns, I've, I've run Fate with six-year-olds. I've this, The system is simple enough that you can run it very, very easily, teach it very, very easily, and yet still has a lot of fun crunch to it. Still has a lot of fun mechanics to it. That means like my wife and I, we still love Fate. I would play Fate all the time. It's a really, really excellent game. And again, 66 pages for the physical rule book. All of the rules are available on an SRD. You can find them if you want to read like what Fate is without spending any money at all. You can do so by checking out the SRD for Fate below. Fate Condensed is the version I like the best. It's very lightweight, has a lot of the elements that exist in Fate Core and Fate Accelerated. It sort of sits between Fate Core and Fate Accelerated. Very straightforward and easy to use. I love Fate. Whenever people talk about other third-party role-playing games, uh, particularly ones that are similar to D&D, I always have people bring up Index Card RPG. Index Card RPG brought up by Runehammer Games is a really interesting take on D&D. It sort of sits between modern sensibilities and modern ideas that we can bring to our D&D games, things that we've learned over the years, but still tries to maintain that classic feel of D&D. Though it certainly looks sort of like an old-school version of D&D, it actually can apply to many different genres. It comes with a couple of different worlds that you can play this in. Uh, Alfheim, which is your very much your straightforward fantasy world, and Warp Shell, which is a science fiction one. So it shows how you can use this system to play in different genres. Index Card RPG is very much focused on trying to capture the cinematic action of a role-playing game. It tries to abstract a lot of the crunchiest mechanics for you and really get into making a fun story. One of the things that makes Index Card RPG stand out is the artwork. There's a lot of really cool artwork. And the idea is that you can sort of drop these cards on the table and sort of build out your world and build out your dungeon in pieces like this. It uses an abstract movement system. There isn't specific distance in this. In this, I think previous versions of this used to use the banana as your general distance guide. That anything that was within a banana is close. Anything further out than the banana is far away. I kind of miss the fact that they don't do that anymore. I thought the, the banana-based distance system really was, was cool to me. But it 
definitely, and that's something that resonates with me. I am a big fan of abstract distances in role-playing games. The idea of very specific distances, moving a certain number of feet, not really my style. I've played a lot of systems that use that, and I've played a lot of systems that use an abstract style, and I certainly... Uh, like the abstract style. Even if you're going to use a map, you can still use a battle map. You can still use terrain. You can still use Dwarven Forge if you've got it. But you can still use abstract distances and not worry about five foot steps and not worry about specific specific distances. And that's something I really like. And that's something that the Index Card RPG does. I have not played Index Card RPG, but it is something I have physical versions. I've got it sitting around. It is definitely a system I want to try out. And it's something that many people have come to me and said, you should really check out Index Card RPG. You're really going to like it. And I wanted to pass that on to you. Iron Swarm by Sean Tompkin is a really interesting role playing game. The number one thing about this game that I think is really cool is you can play it completely by yourself. I've actually played a, a short adventure in Iron Sworn as a solo game, and I think it's a really interesting way for GMs to do some cross-training. It's a way to really get your mind to build stories from random things that are occurring in the game. It's actually a surprisingly crunchy game. It took a takes a little bit of work to get the rules down, uh, but once you have them down, you can play it either solo or you can play it one-on-one. -on -one. You can play it as a partnership where it's the two of you against the system, against the world, or you could play as a group. And a uh, really interesting way to do it. The whole system resource document for Iron Sworn is available online. I think the entire book is actually available online if you want to check it out. The mechanics are sort of a mix of Powered by the Apocalypse, which is a very common system, and Fate. It uses 2d10 and a d6, and it's sort of you rolling the d6 against the rolls of the 2d10 to determine did you have a, a, a pure success, success with consequences, or a failure. Uh, it has a whole system called the Oracle. The Oracle is sort of a way to see the direction that the game is going to go by rolling on a whole series of tables to watch the game sort of twist and turn in different directions. One of the best uses of random tables for generating really interesting stories that I've ever seen. I was heavily influenced by Ironsworn when I built the tables for the Lazy DM's Companion. It's a fantastic role-playing game. Sean Tompkin recently put out Ironsworn Starforge as a Kickstarter. I actually just got the book yesterday. I built a character on my own in Ironsworn Starforge to give it a try. I didn't have a chance to make an actual adventure for it yet, but I built a character, so if you are interested in sort of Firefly-style space-based adventures, uh, Ironsworn Starforge is an excellent system based on Ironsworn. Level Up Advanced 5e is published by N-World Publishing, and it is a complete drop-in replacement for D&D 5th Edition. It has a player's guide, it has an adventurer's guide, and it has a monster manual that can you can drop in any of them or all of them. The characters that you build in Level Up 5e are completely compatible with General 5e. The monsters in the Monsters Menagerie, which was my favorite product of 2022, that the, any of the monsters that are in that book you can drop directly into your 5th Edition campaign. If you are looking to play 5th Edition and you don't really want to touch the core books, this is a good way to do it. The Adventurer's Guide includes new character classes, uh, new ideas for how existing character classes work, but all of them are in a standard way that you are comfortable with if you're comfortable with 5th edition. It is certainly, it brings on the idea of advanced 5e, so it's a little bit crunchier than your straight general 5th edition. If you sort of are, are wanting a little bit more in different moves, different tactics, different feats, everything like that, you can do so uh, with Level Up Advanced 5e. If you want to take on some other ideas like exploration uh, or, or new types of equipment or new ways of handling resources, the Adventurer's Guide for Level Up Advanced 5e is something that you can bring directly into your 5th edition game. So all three of the books that exist, there's actually a number of other books as well, but the three core books that exist for Level Up Advanced 5e, any or all of them can be dropped into your 5th edition game to fill out your game with all new, all new stuff. I've been in love with Numenera ever since it came out. I think I've backed every Numenera Kickstarter that's come out, and it is just a beautiful role-playing game. It is a beautiful 
beautiful world, really interesting world, really fun system. I think it might be my favorite game to run as a game master. The rules for it on the GM side are very simple and straightforward. Everything has a challenge level between 1 and 10, and that one number you can dissect into everything from a small spider that is attacking the characters, or a lock on a door that they need to break through, or a giant celestial entity that it's breaking its way through the dimension to try to devour the entire planet. Everything is based on this difficulty level of 1 to 10. Uh, the Numenera is based on a role-playing game system called the Cypher system. Numenera was the first one to use it, but Monty Cook Games has since published the Cypher system as a separate independent role-playing game system. You can pick up just that book. Uh, I would probably put it halfway through on the crunch to fluff meter on the idea of like how story-focused is it versus how much crunch it has. Kind of in the middle. It is crunchier than games like Fate or Powered by the Apocalypse style games, but not quite as crunchy as your 5th edition D&D style games. It sits somewhere in the middle. There's decent character progression, but my group found that the game probably works best for shorter term campaigns rather than long campaigns. We all kind of found that the math starts to break down at the highest tiers of play. Uh, that was something I, ha I learned from running about a six month long Numenera campaign for my group. That game had the best and biggest story of any role-playing game I've ever run. It had the biggest twists and turns that we've ever had in a role-playing game. But in talking to my players afterwards, and in talking to a lot of other players who played Numenera, from a character, from a player perspective, the mechanics don't always grab people as much as I would hope. I really wish that Numenera and the Cypher system grabbed players as much as the system grabs me as a GM. You can check out either the Cypher system itself or Numenera Discovery is really kind of the core Numenera book if you only want, have one book for Numenera, I would suggest picking up Numenera Discovery. That's kind of the central core book. Really beautiful system, beautiful artwork, tremendous line of different products that they put out for it. Again, I would absolutely run Numenera games in the future. I really, really enjoyed them. If you're looking to get back to the pure version of D&D from its oldest days of inception, the 50-year-old version of D&D, Old School Essentials is where I would go. Following this whole idea of the OSR, the Old School Revival or Old School Renaissance, whatever you want to call it, I think it has different names. I think people argue about the names. Don't yell at me. Don't yell at me in the comments. I'm sorry. Whatever I said that you didn't like, I am sorry I said it. But the Old School Essentials is really a refinement of the original version of D&D, often known as BX, basically the basic rules of D&D. Very straightforward system. I would say far better written than the original system is, and really designed to take a modern reading on those old school principles. If you want to play a very straightforward, old school-like D&D game, Old School Essentials is definitely where I would go, and I'd say many, many people have pointed to it. It's published by Necrotic Games. There are free versions of the basic, very basic of the basic rules. If you want to see what it's like, you can go there. Uh, very straight, very big on the idea of rolling for your attributes. Character death happens very quickly. This role-playing goes back to that idea that classes and races were sort of the same thing. So you have your cleric, dwarf, elf, fighter, halfling, magic user, and thief. You notice there's no separation between races and classes in this. It's all just classes. There are variants that let you kind of split your races and classes if you want to sort of expand upon the game, but this core version of that game is just, these are the classes that you pick and this is how they work. If your group is really bound around all of the different character options that you have in something like 5th edition, they might find this a little too basic. The character abilities that you have in a game like this are very, very lightweight. 
For that reason, I think it probably works best for short campaigns where you're really focused on kind of an old school adventure, going to a dungeon, worrying about traps, getting killed by a kobold with a single arrow. If that's the style of play that you want, this is definitely a way to go. I think players that are looking for crunchier mechanics are probably going to find that in another RPG. If you're really looking for a role-playing game that captures the old-school feel of D&D, this is definitely where I would go. Shadow of the Demon Lord by Robert Schwab is an excellent role-playing game. I ran a... 10 session campaign of Shadow of the Demon Lord a few years ago, and all of my players really, really enjoyed it. It is a grim book. It is a grim setting. It is about Armageddon. It is about blood and gore and death and destruction and Armageddon and dark, dark things, man. Dark, bad stuff in this game. That said, the mechanics are really fun. The way character progression works resonated with my players in a really strong way. People really liked playing a zero-level character that starts off with just a job and then growing their character over time. The balance of the, the different ways that you have your novice path, your expert path, and your master path, and the fact that you can jump around between the paths, you don't have to follow sort of one course, you can follow many courses, means there's a tremendous amount of character options and and character customization that you can do in this game in a single volume. It is really excellent. The only criticism I have for the book is because it's so focused on that dark fantasy style, it's hard to apply it to other systems. You probably could take it and lighten it up a bit. That said, Robert Schwab is apparently going to be coming out with a new version of this game called Shadow of the Weird Wizard, which is hopefully going to be kickstarted sometime this year. I'm very much looking forward to that. It's the idea of taking Shadow of the Demon Lord, but kind of removing its darkest elements so that you can play it in a more standard traditional fantasy setting. I'm very excited for that. I really, really love Shadow of the Demon Lord, and if that style of game is for you, this is where I would go. The only other thing you might compare it to is something like Njorkberg, which is another very dark, grim, death metal fantasy role-playing game. Morkberg is definitely leans on the mechanics light side. I would say Shadow of the Demon Lord definitely has more mechanics for it, which means it might have a little bit more longevity for characters who really like character customization. Shadow of the Demon Lord is designed to be played in single sessions, and it's designed to end after about 11 sessions of play. That said, you could get away with sort of doing two sessions for every level. So you could probably easily squeeze out 20 sessions of play, a good size, a good decent sized campaign out of a single Shadow of the Demon Lord campaign. This The, the main core book has everything you need to play. It's got monsters. It's got character options. It's got world information. It's got everything in it. That said, Robert Schwab has a ton of material that he's released for Shadow of the Demon Lord. Hundreds of products more than 100 products that you can take and draw information from them, drop them into your Shadow of the Demon Lord game. Really fun role-playing game. My players really dug it. I would definitely play it again. I really, really enjoyed it. Friends, we are living in interesting times. And hopefully they will get better in the future. In the meantime, this hobby is strong. In the, in the meantime, we control the games that we run for our players around our table. That's what matters. That's what mo is most important. We're all watching what's going on. We're all watching what Wizards of the Coast is going to do with Dungeons and Dragons. And hopefully they turn it around because it's really not good right now. But that said, we control the game. We own our hobby. We own D&D. D&D is ours and there's nothing they can do about that. I hope you enjoyed this show. If you did, you can help me out by subscribing to the Sly Flourish newsletter where you get a weekly RPG related email sent directly to your inbox. You, pick up, you can pick up any of my books at the Sly Flourish bookstore or you can join the Sly Flourish Flourish Patreon. All of the links for those are in the show notes below. Thank you all very much. Have a great day and get out there and play a role-playing game.